Welcome everybody to Finding Hermes, and this is a special show as I'm not doing my commentary at the end, but at the beginning. And I hope everybody has started their year well. As you can see, my dog Lady over here isn't too excited, and she might be the wisest animal or being of all. But anyway, uh, this is not something unusual. I like to do these double headers at the beginning of the year, give you that extra gnosis so you can navigate the next 12 months. After all, you know the Archon's got plenty of shenanigans for you this year. So I'm here to help. And this double header is extremely amazing. I will, I am providing two incredible guests, two remarkable figures and singular minds in the esoterica. And that is Charles Eisenstein and my friend Mitch Horowitz. Charles, as many of you know, is a speaker, researcher, and writer extraordinaire. An incredible mind, always finding innovative and uh, game-changing ideas in the esoterica. Same with Mitch. Mitch has done incredible work in uh, the field of non-local intelligence, ESP, the occult, ufology, and everything else. And he'll be on the show to discuss his new book, Uncertain Places. So you're going to find a lot of useful tools, insights, and even revelations to make this year, well, not even bearable, but something you can uh, thrive in. It should be mentioned, too, that both Charles and Mitch have been canceled pretty bad. They have become pariahs, often in uh, diametrically opposed movements. They are truly heretics among heretics. And they have uh, paid the price, but they have held on to the data. They've held on to their convictions, their findings, and they have always pushed back against the conventional narrative of our culture, the uh, stay safe or just play it safe uh, vibe that we have on this world. And because of this, they have been vindicated in 2023, as you will see. So both Charles and Mitch bring, uh, you might say, an example of how you can remain authentic in these times of universal deceit. After all, uh, the universe seems to push us into some sort of herd mentality or to accept the conventional narrative that uh, culture wants us to, well, just accept and not find our authentic selves and how we can disrupt the world in order to create dialogue and ask questions and move the needle away from the normal. And this is very important as our culture slowly, well, 
slowly dies as you are seeing so you'll get a lot out of both charles and mitch and i know it's going to help you in your life and it's certainly going to help you to walk through those doors with the god of the mind hermes so enjoy and yes enjoy the rest of the year welcome everybody and very excited about this show and as always i like to say i hope you're ready to go through the doorways with the god of the mind hermes go to where you need to go in those liminal spaces and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by charles eisenstein and to discuss much of his work which has really helped me in fact uh, charles much of your content has been sort of a a lifesaver a daily vitamin that has uh, really put things in perspective and allowed me to uh, thrive in these crazy times so thanks for joining the show yeah happy to be here miguel pleasure is all mine so tell us charles i was wondering if uh how would you describe yourself i often like to call you a, a heretic to the heretics and i mean that as a 100 as a compliment but if you were in an elevator and somebody said, Charles, what do you do? Uh, what would you tell them? And it is weird. I know I'm going on a, a side topic, but only in the United States, when you meet somebody, will somebody say, what do you do? When I'm in Europe, that's like, it's not important. But here in America, for some reason, it is. But if somebody asks you, what do you tell them? Yeah, it's true. Like in other countries, it's a different conversation. It's not uh, part of who you are, really. <laughs> I used to live in I used to live in Taiwan, you know, in my twenties, and the conversation, like if you got into a taxi cab or whatever, or met a stranger, the conversation, the first question would be, "Are you married?" Um, and then, "Do you have children?" And the second question would often be, "How much money do you make?" Oh, really? Like taxi drivers would ask you that. Yeah. Very, because that was more important than how you made the money, I guess. Um, anyway, if if it's you know, anyway, the situation you're describing, usually I just say, I'm a writer um, and a public speaker, and often, you know, I, yeah, I, because I, I don't necessarily want to try to give the elevator uh, version of my <laughs> ideas to somebody who's actually just kind of wanting to place me in the social matrix, yeah. you know, and get into that whole conversation. But yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, what I actually do is sit in front of my computer and wiggle my fingers and, you know, go for walks and think about things and, and read. And yeah, I guess I'm kind of an intellectual um, mm -hmm. or what I'm passes for one these days. Yeah, I'm sure that taxi driver in Taiwan would have kicked you out by now. Huh? If you, <laughs> no, just uh, unless you tell him you make a lot of money or something like that. <clears throat> Interesting how the cultures are, and uh, I was, uh, of course, I listen to your videos. I, I read your articles. Again, is almost uh, uh, as a as a continuous daily red pill, as I said, and. You were talking about growing up, how the books you've read and you talked about All Quiet on the Western Front. And that was a book when I was 15 that like transformed my mind, uh, my idealistic view of war, John Wayne and Rambo and Vietnam, all that changed. And it's horrified me. And uh, have you watched the Netflix movie? It's really good. And it just reinforced no. it like re-triggered my hatred for war. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, that 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 book had a profound influence on me. It really inoculated me against some of the uh you know jingoism and and uh war fever that overtook the country uh you know starting with uh Kuwait and and Iraq and all that. Um and really yeah deeply informed my political views as a um I like to say I'm a nine I'm 99% a pacifist. You know, I think that there are moments in life where it's time to fight. Um, but our society tends to apply into uh, what I'm trying to say, it tends to apply fighting and the um organizational principle of us versus them to pretty much every situation. You know, find the find the enemy, find the thing to fight find the the virus, find the greenhouse gas, find the Illuminati, you know, find, like try to locate evil in the person of an identifiable uh, person or group or entity, you know, something like that whole mindset um, is something that I've been deeply skeptical of. And part of the reason is because of the early programming from these anti-war novels Catch twenty two is another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was a powerful one. <clears throat> and you're right. I mean, there's that scene in All Quiet on the Western Front where he's laying the German guys laying on a ditch with the dying French soldier for hours, mm -hmm. and he finds out I want to help him because he realized this guy's just a kid with me. You know, a, a yeah. year ago he was just in some place in France trying to get a job, thinking about marrying a girl, and now I've killed him. And yeah. that's what we do, right? We create these enemies. And of course, George Orwell's 1984 is the classic. You got to create uh, these uh, shadowy enemies to control. That's it, right? To control the population. Yes, uh, because any external enemy will also come with an internal enemy. So, the, the, you know, the traitor, the heretic, the anti-masker or whatever. Like, you know, there's somebody um, who is inside society. So you have to institute totalitarian control of society because don't you know there's a war on? And that's why you mentioned Orwell in 1984. It was crucial to the maintenance of that society to have a war always going on because it justifies anything. Yeah, it's incredible. At the same time, a lot of it, wouldn't you say, is projection i mean going union and even on social media there is a lot of projection going out there we cast our shadow on a perceived minority because it's easier than looking inward so that way we create an enemy because we don't want to look at ourselves i mean whether it doesn't matter what side you're on i mean as some people would would get mad, mad at me because people would complain about Trump. And I realized whatever you're criticizing about Trump, I hate to tell you, but it's pro you probably have it somewhere or Biden or anything. Would you say that we've yeah. just gone yeah. crazy with the projection? Yeah, it's the same template that I was speaking of, of find the enemy and go to war against them. So part of that is that you cast the enemy in the most, uh, uh, disgusting possible light 
project all kinds of evil onto them, you know, make a caricature of them uh, into something contemptible. Both sides in our current political debate do that. You know, if you look at the comments sections anywhere, it's uh, like the, the underlying theme is, aren't those people horrible? And the suggestion then is if only we could defeat those people, humiliate those people, if only those people weren't even there, if they, were, if they could be punished, if they could be expunged from society, then the problem would be solved. That is the common agreement among all sides. And it disturbs, you know, I, I used to have something of a home um, as a, as a, sort of public intellectual um, in the, on the left. Um, and now, you know, after all the COVID stuff, I became no longer welcome on the left. Um, even though, like, I mean, I thought the left was supposed to be all about uh, peace and environmental protection and, and uh, the, the rights of those who are excluded from power and profit. And now all of a sudden it's become, you know, about the, uh, fealty to, to, to corporate interests and so forth. But anyway, so then like, so now a lot of my audience is more on the right, but like the same patterns repeat there too. Like, like around immigration, for example, and the demonization of these immigrants and the contempt for these immigrants, not asking like, and so you were saying like, not looking at ourselves. Why? What are the conditions under which people are so desperate to leave their homes, that they will risk everything to do so and be separated from their families and their language to step into total uncertainty. Like, what does it take? What would it take for you to do that? Mm. To, to like trust human smugglers and step onto like some, into some truck and, and you hear the horror stories and you have to give them all your money. Like, what would it take for you to do that? Let's ask that kind of question because the real revolution is to rehumanize everybody and to to know each other as sacred beings, you know. And that's like might sound new agey and stuff, but come on. Can a can a sane, livable, beautiful world be built on anything else? So that's what I'm upholding in my work. Yeah, well said. Yeah, those uh, <clears throat> excuse me, those stories of the coyotes is is horror. I mean, not the, not only will they take your money, but they will oh, they'll yeah. rape your wife and daughter, or rape or they'll rape the husband. I mean, the the they will really dehumanize you. So it's a huge price. So it's horrible to come to a country that has plenty of resources and uh, definitely has uh, plenty of jobs. Again, you've talked about scarcity and how it's manipulated, but. How has it been for you since you became sort of uh, like many of us, homeless uh, politically, socially, uh, philosophically? How has the last two years been for you? What what have you learned, and what would you like to tell people to do when you find yourself uh, completely as an outcast, or your ideas that you know are backed up by data are just completely under attack by the mob? Uh, how has it been, Charles? Well, you know. I mean, it definitely uh, triggered some of my uh, fears uh, and anxieties about that kind of thing. But, you know, compared to the things that can happen to a human being, objectively speaking, it's not that bad. 
really. I wasn't, you know, literally tarred and feathered. You know, <laughs> I wasn't like put in the stocks uh, and and tortured. You know, so gotta take it in in, in perspective. Um, I will say also though, um, it's kind of just a a, a also like a a, a lot of um, a lot of stuff just rose to the surface. In a lot of ways, I already didn't fit into uh, either or any of the political camps or opinion tribes that predominate today. For example, like, I mean, even in my, my The Ascent of Humanity, which was my first major book, I wrote it in from 2003 to 2007. There's a whole section about the war on germs. You know, I'm, I'm pointing out like things like uh, infectious disease mortality rates declined precipitously before vaccines were introduced. Like all this, like I was talking about that stuff 20 years ago, mm. but it was not controversial, really. Like good thinking liberals and leftists read and applauded that book um, because, you know, the the one of the main thrusts of it was a critique of modernity and colonialism and imperialism and so forth. Um, so, you know, I was kind of one of us in, because, because people, people, they, they'll, um, that's, that's the lens increasingly that people look and judge each other by is, are you on that side or on this side? You know, are you one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? So when, if they get the idea that you're one of the good guys, then they'll kind of ignore the things that that they don't agree with or even interpret them as the opposite. I've had this happen too. Mm-hmm. And then once they get the idea that you're one of the bad guys and you have cooties, then anything, you know, any fuel for that fire will be easily noticed. So I guess what I what I'm what I came to is that we have to um establish it's not another opinion tribe, but it is a community based on values that transcend the pattern of us versus them. A community that that holds reverence for our fellow beings, like even beyond respect, but reverence for our fellow human beings and other beings as primary. And, is, and that we are consciously together unlearning the habits of us versus them. Yeah, Divide that's, that's and conquer. People. That's I always tell right. people. That's how they get us. That it's, it's on purpose from the top. It's a classic uh, archon tool, as I call it. If they can mm-hmm. divide us and have, you know, Antifa and Proud Boys fighting on the streets, they can count their money in the bank, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, which is why it's so disturbing. Like a, a few years ago, there was a, like a joint march by black lives matter and the proud boys Mm. um like by some you know some group affiliated with black lives matter and the proud boys you know and they were like they were you know i mean literally walking arm in arm you know but that was so disturbing to the narrative of any side that it didn't get a lot of play but there there is it's a sign of a um potential unity of the people that wants to happen because a lot of these a lot of the energies that get channeled into these divisions 
their real target, the real anger, the real indignation is not toward whatever superficial bad guy is presented as to you to hate. The real indignation is towards the entire system that we live in and the elites that preside over it. And when the, and it's really not even so much the, the individuals who are among the elites, you know, like we could, you know, if Bill Gates disappeared, you know, if there was some big scandal or whatever, uh, and Bill Gates disappears, something like him is structurally necessary. A new Bill Gates would come up. Right. So the elites are more puppets of the system than the other way around. Um, so anyway, as long as our anger and, and indignation and thirst for justice is diverted onto fighting and punishing somebody, uh, which is usually each other, then we're not going to actually change very much. Oh, agreed again. And um, what about the idea of fear? I mean, I remember early 2020 with all the stuff going on. I remember being gripped by emotions. And thank God in you know March of 2020, I had done, I was in a spiritual mental place where I sort of, my eyes were open and a voice simply said, Miguel, don't worry about the situation, attack the fear. Once you attack the fear and the anxiety, everything will become clear. And that's what I did up my uh my meditation my spiritual life everything else and once everything happened i came to this place of uh clarity and peace and the data was easy to read uh mm -hmm. but it's easier said than done right because fear again is the other tool they get us once that virus of fear gets in somebody's head then it's almost impossible to reason with it. Like uh, Gabo Mate said recently in the interview, it doesn't matter what side you were in 2020 and 2021. The problem was the panicking that completely not didn't allow any sort of communication or real progress and all that. So what do you, how do you deal with fear, Charles? Or what advice do you have for people on how to overcome that mind virus, as the novel Dune calls it? Well, so I think that fear, like all emotions, has a valid and important and proper function. It's fear is to uh, raise your level of alertness and um, point your attention. Like it, it, it focuses your attention and um, directs it toward uh, a threat. You know, like you become aware of something you weren't aware of before. Like when you're driving over ice, you know, like like when I drive over ice, I feel fear. Like it and and fear can, um, you know, shut you down, but it can also um, bring you to a higher degree of attention and, and aliveness, like when you're driving over ice. So I felt a lot of fear um, in 2020. I wasn't afraid of COVID. I wasn't afraid of a virus. I wasn't afraid of getting sick, but I was afraid of the um, hysteria and the totalitarian impulse that hijacked the general hysteria. So, and I recognized it in February. I was like, okay, this is a hysteria. I told people that I was holding a retreat then. This is a hysteria. And hysteria, like, it is terrifying when the mob gets an idea 
you know, they can rampage around and and lynch people and burn witches, you know, and and um, that energy then can be commandeered by uh, fascists, by dictators, by totalitarians. I mean, that's that's you know we've seen this historically happen again and again. So, yeah, I was scared, I was alarmed, and I was like, okay, I've got to do something about this. Um, and I think that when 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 fear takes you to a place of i'm going to do something about it it's it's not a bad thing you know it depends on the, and it also it's like what are you actually afraid of too because a lot of um our deep fears get channeled onto proximate targets same thing with anger and hate you know mm-hmm. like like a lot of people were were terrified of COVID, even though objectively it was not that scary a disease. I mean, compared to the amount of death and suffering that's being caused by chronic disease these days, by addiction, by obesity, by autoimmunity, you know, not actually that serious. I mean, even considering, I mean, okay, like a, like something globally, six point six million people um, have died of COVID. Um, or at least died with COVID, uh, and maybe twenty percent of them would have died if if generic and natural therapies were not suppressed. So it's not nothing, you know. But but seriously, like, why so much fear? Like like completely changing our way of life. It obviously wasn't fear of this virus, of this disease. It was a much deeper, unprocessed fear that that got channeled onto that. And it's, you know, ultimately it's the fear of death and the fear of the loss of control, the fear of the unknown. And so here that, you know, we have this latent fear. And then when something like a like a disease comes along that you can actually control or you think you can control it. It's convenient. It's a it's an outlet for the fear. It's a relief. So I think a lot of people were actually, in a sense, relieved to finally be faced with a threat that they knew what to do about. You know, I can just stay inside and I will be safe. People want to be safe. People want to be secure. They want to feel like they belong in the world. Like that's that's the deep need that gets channeled into this fear. So so what you're saying, there's some truth in what you're saying, like, don't live in fear, um, meditate, like, yeah, but it's really for me, it's more of coming to terms with what am I actually afraid of? Because when I, when, when you deny fear and distract yourself from what you're afraid of, and like, say, distract yourself from fear of death by watching endless Netflix or something like that, <laughs> like, and you never come to terms with the truth, then that fear operates unconsciously. And it manifests as panic. It manifests as paralysis because it's never actually faced. So fear is like other emotions. It's not a bad thing when you actually feel it, you know, and actually meet it and receive its message. Then it can be a good thing. Yeah. So fear is not like the new (laughs) new age enemy, you know, it's (laughs) war between love and fear. It has its proper place and we should not be afraid of fear. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah, exactly. And for the audience, yeah, it's in Dune, it's uh, fear is the mind killer, which it is. And I think you hit it on the head. Fear is about control. When I'm afraid, I don't. it's because I'm going to lose something and I don't want to lose it. So fear sets in. I don't want to lose money or the girl or whatever it is. And I think on a primordial level is I'm it's me wanting to hold on to life. I don't want to die. So I get into the sort of control system. But when I let go of both life and death, and I put myself in the stream of something greater than there, then I have no fear. It doesn't mean I'm foolhardy or stupid. It just means I have let go and I can only control what I can control. And I mean, it was, I think, Sigmund Freud said that as humans, what we hate is uncertainty. It will kill us. From an evolutionary stance, that makes sense, right, Charles? I mean, we don't have claws or wings. We're, we humans are kind of like shaven apes. So we have to know if the leaves are rustling and the birds are flying. We have to know that there is a predator behind there because as humans, that's really the best thing we have is that we can find patterns and we can find certainty in those patterns. So you think that so that is part of why this struck so hard, like you said. Yeah. Um, or the invader, the Muslim invader, or the secret Jew out there. You know what I mean? That unknown, dark, shadowy thing. We we, we don't have certainty, and we want to control the patterns. Yeah, and some degree of control is necessary and appropriate to this realm. You know, like, um, I, there are... I, I like being alive and I have work to do here and <laughs> things to experience. And so fear helps keep me here. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but a hundred times more fear comes from an illusion that um, death could be conquered, that I'm not going to die. And that's why in many spiritual practices, it's so important to meditate on death and to really take in the fact of your mortality, because then that changes your priorities. You know, you're you no longer, like just to take a really simple example, you no longer want to uh, accumulate as much money and security as possible, because it's a waste <laughs> to do that if you're gonna die anyway. You know, you might as well devote your resource to things that will outlive you, because, and, and that would not be rational if you were immortal. So, so the illusion that our society fosters that you are immortal, it's not explicit, usually. Um, usually it's just through the denial of death, through euphemisms, through the sequestering of old people in nursing homes, through images of youth um, in, in advertising, um, through the association of money with self, you know, because money doesn't die. Money lasts forever. So if it's your money and if the money is you and that's your net worth, then there's a solution that you'll last forever. Yeah, all of that fosters an illusion that that prevents us from really facing the truth of mortality. And that generates endless fear beyond the natural amount necessary to maintain an appropriate boundary for our lives and growth on Earth.
Yeah, well said. Like the Stoics say, uh, memento mori, uh, remember mm -hmm. death. Uh, in Buddhist, in Buddhism, I think it's Tibetan, you meditate in the grave and graveyard so you can keep a sense of perspective on the temporality. In Sufism, there's a saying, today I'm going to die, there is no God but God. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, it gives you a, a perspective about what I think ultimately is an illusion, which is, uh, which is death. And um, what about the idea of hope? I know you've talked about it. I often on this show say where hope dies, imagination must live. I have been kind of harsh on hope, Charles, because uh, remember the famous myth of Pandora? What's the last evil in the box? Hope. And that foolish hope. And I say we need to get rid of hope and we need to uh, think of something else, take some action. And I remember getting in an argument with somebody and he said, well, what if somebody's dying and they definitely have no... Uh, they have two weeks. Are you going to tell them they're going to die? Or are you going to tell them the truth? And I said, well, that's an int. I'll leave that as a koan because it is true. Should I lie to this person for comfort or should I tell them this is, these are the next steps? So on a, that's a bit of a side note, but tell us what you think about hope. Yeah. So there's false hope and true hope. False hope, otherwise known as fantasy, is a denial of reality. And it's very paralyzing and counterproductive to actually changing reality because you're, you're not facing reality and you're just hoping things will be different without doing anything about it, right? And that's what you're talking about. But there's also authentic hope, which is a premonition of a possibility. It's a knowing that something other than what is, is possible. Therefore, if you have that knowing that we call hope, you will be motivated, you will be liberated to work for that possibility because you know it's not hopeless. When people are not in touch with that authentic hope, then they feel despair and they stop doing anything. Like, what's the point? You know, what's the point in? planting a garden or restoring this ecosystem or protecting this watershed when the whole planet is just going to perish from global warming anyway. You know, what's the, what's the, like the, that um, loss of hope is actually a denial of something true. Because in fact, as I like to say, a more beautiful world is possible. And our connection to that possibility brings a very positive and enlivening feeling. And that's what we call hope. That's authentic hope. And I think that we, we really need that right now because the rational mind with its received understanding of what is and how change happens will uh, hypnotize us into despair because it looks hopeless. Like rationally speaking, how, is, how are we gonna get out of this dilemma that we are in, out of this crisis? when people don't even want to change and the, the power structures are so entrenched and the elites are so psychopathic, et cetera, et cetera. Like you can have a million reasons why a true revolution of love is impossible. And against all of those reasons, those lies, stands hope, which is something in you, despite all of that mental noise, knows that it is possible. And I'm going to live by that. 
Well said. And yet, here's the question I like to ask people too. Uh, how would you define love? Because again, love is one of those terms that gets thrown around by poets, musicians, speakers. Uh, I know, and I'm going to quote the old song because I can't help it, but what is love, baby, don't hurt me? Yeah. I feel like if I have to define love, it's already too late. Good you know, point. like yeah. this idea that, that to talk about anything and to understand anything, we have to base it on definitions. I mean, well, come I said, on. Human beings and ambiguity and, Pat, you know what I mean? You and know, people are like, I need to know. I need a definition. I need to, you know, a BuzzFeed yeah. 10, 10 listicle, Charles. I mean, I, 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 you know, I mean, sometimes I define it as uh, the expansion of self to include another so that, you know, you're not separate from me. So I care. Your happiness is my happiness. Your suffering is my suffering. Like, mm. You know, that, that we're, 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 we're not separate. Like, so I, and, and love is the feeling of that incorporation of another, that expansion, uh, the dilation of the self and the softening of its boundaries. So, you know, if you need a definition, we could go with that, but uh, I would rather do without definitions when it comes to love. <laughs> there you go. And that it really is a solution to a lot of our, well, environmental problems, if you want to call it. I mean, I think I agree and I love the work you've done and people like uh, Richard Tarnas and Gordon White. I mean, basically telling us we can't solve the problem with the same mindset that got us into our problem. So even things like using terms like environment and climate and all, those are colonizing terms and those are they separate us from the other, from nature. And that's another colonizing term, I suppose. And so we need to change our mindset, like you said. And I love what you said, love, because if we can extend ourselves to what's around us, that can solve a lot of problems, right? I mean, we need to change our consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, yeah. I, mean, I would just add to that maybe that, that, I don't know. Is this something that we can do? Like, you know, when we talk about we need to do this and, and That's okay, a call, so here's, yeah. like, like, how do I expand myself? Do I like push on something? You know, like, how does love happen? <laughs> the, the, the language gives a clue. We fall in love. So maybe this isn't, you know, some new thing that we have to do right. Um, maybe it's happening to us. And as we accept that and are grateful for that and receive that. That is what strengthens it. Maybe it's happening right now. Like maybe, maybe more love is coming into your life. Maybe that happens sometimes through great pain or through loss that opens you up. Um, I ran into a guy recently, you know, who had a near death experience and it opened him, opened him up profoundly to love you can it's like radiating from him and it's it's carried in every word he says and it's not like he set out to do that something happened to him and so maybe love is seeking us and love finds us and we can't add that to a list of accomplishments when we become more loving you know but all we can say is thank you Gratitude is great. Yeah, I think once you set out, you don't have to worry about hope or you can hope turns more into trust. 
and it becomes more reflexive. The answers will come. Get rid of fear, as you've talked and all that. Like I was reading, I think, one of your articles, and you talk about how you like to go outside and pee. And I said, that's brilliant. That makes, to me, it made 100, 100% sense. It's not like I am trying to save the environment. It's almost like you are connecting more in a very unconscious way or subconscious way with nature. I mean, I used to laugh at people that hug trees in my 20s. Needless to say, I've sort of eaten crow on that because all of the sudden the urge came to me the more I meditated like, wow, just touching these things transforms my mind. Yeah. And yeah, I, like I like to be outside like to now. Outside. <laughs> I think I am. Yeah, I feel like, you know, at home when I do that. It feels good. And there's probably some electrical circuit that gets connected, you know, that's probably grounding and balancing. Um, and yeah, I like to add some nitrogen to the soil. You know, it makes me feel friendly. I like feeling friendly. This this idea that that altruism or or gift or being good is a is a sacrifice is not true. It's it feels good to feel friendly, and to be in comradeship with others. It's playful. I think that's what being in nature really is. There's a playfulness to it. So, I think that's what we've forgotten. I uh, another article I really liked over you, and that's the article "Fascism in the Anti-Festival," and it was so wonderful, Charles, because I did a show on Rene Girard a few months ago, mm -hmm. but I kept it completely low level. We kept it with the myths and his books, uh, "Satan Falls from the Sky Like Lightning." You know, I didn't like uh, connect it to today, even though I kept hinting at it for the audience. And I, because I think his ideas are so relevant, especially his ideas of the safe, sacred scapegoat. Uh, as humans, I don't think we've gotten past that idea of that we somehow need, we need a sacrifice. We need, uh, as we project, we need our projection validated. So somebody has to be sacrificed. Somebody in the tribe has to be given up. I guess right. they call it cancel culture today, right? Somebody, yeah. And it's not just the left. I mean, remember the days of the Dixie Chicks and so forth when the right was the cancel culture? Oh, yeah, the right invented cancel culture, you know? I mean, they're the ones who were burning Beatles albums and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. know these days Kanye West is like the big uh, jester of our society, but people forget he came out 20 years ago when George Bush doesn't care about black people, and he got canceled brutally by the right. So, yeah. yeah. But what is this idea of we have to sacrifice with this holy violence, yeah. and how can we stop it? Yeah, so I think Rene Girard um, had his, his insights helped explain a lot that happened during COVID. So I wrote a five essay series on that, um, which is now in my book, The Coronation. Mm -hmm. And and basically, it's a very ancient pattern where a society faces some kind of stress and tensions rise and people start to blame each other. Uh, and tit for tat violence escalates. Uh, retribution, cycles of vengeance, blood feuds, and these threaten to tear society apart and they divide, they divide the society. You know, I saw you with 
that guy and he's the guy who killed my cousin, you know, which side are you on after all? So, so everybody has to choose sides and it tears society apart. What can be done about this? Well, the historical pattern was that this riven society would unify in an act of violence against some kind of scapegoat, some kind of villain, um, a sacrificial victim who, upon whom would be loaded all of the blame, all of the evil. So that when, and so everyone would get together and kill this person or this group of people thinking, ah, now we've done something about it. And the, the bloodlust gets satiated and that feeling of, of wrong must be righted. Evil must be deposed. We've got to do something about it. Something has been done now. Everybody got together and did something about it. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because these uh, warring sides, these, these, these uh, divided camps have unified in this act of killing. And now peace reigns because really the, the, the conflict was because of the conflict. So now peace reigns. Something has been done. And because killing the victim erased the conflict, erased the tension, the victim must have been responsible for it to begin with. So, so that's where we get the idea of the arch villain. And, the, the, and so this pattern has replayed itself throughout history. When there's a social crisis, you look for a scapegoat or a scapegoat class upon whom to heap all of the blame could be the Jews, could be the witches, could be the, the, the Tutsis, you know, could be um, the unvaccinated. And whoever it is, they get associated with filth and with contagion and mm-hmm. with being dirty. And so the unvaccinated were, were prime candidates uh, for the role of sacrificial victim. And you saw a lot of this, like, you know, because the, the, the first step is exclusion. The first step is dehumanization. You have to ready them for the sacrifice by making them not fully of society. The, 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 Gerard describes the ideal scapegoat, the ideal sacrificial victim as being um, in but not of society, like partly outside society. Mm-hmm. Because if they're fully in society, then they're a full person and their kin will want to get revenge. You have to take somebody outside. So, so historically, prisoners of war would be used but first they'd be a little bit integrated in society or, um, you know, uh, uh, virgin young women, you know, or children, um, uh, slaves, people who are not fully, or even the king who was outside society by being above it. Mm-hmm. In a lot of societies, the original sacrificial victim was the king, you know. Uh, and we have a little bit of that today when we vilify certain elite figures Heap, it's the same pattern. We heap every possible evil imaginable onto them. Klaus Schwab, you know, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci. Like, okay, and maybe they fit the role pretty well. But, but you know, some of these mythologies, you know, have them, you know, devouring babies in satanic rituals. And whether or not they are actually doing that, this fits the pattern of the sacrificial victim. They have to take on evil whether through their own actions or being projected onto them, they're serving a, a, an essential social service. Uh, they're serving an essential function. 
by doing this. And and that's why um, kings were even expected to violate taboos, mm. like marriage taboos. You know, they would marry their sisters and stuff. I mean, this is even in Game of Thrones, right? Like they had to take <laughs> on, they had to take evil onto themselves. Uh, and sometimes, so then the king didn't always like this arrangement of being sacrificed. So eventually he would substitute, maybe um, there would be a, a, a temporary king who would reign for the duration of a festival. And during the festival had absolute arbitrary power and would use that to for depravity, you know. Uh, but at the end of the festival, he would be sacrificed. Or maybe it would be a goat, ultimately, or an effigy. So yeah. today we have Burning Man. So, so this pattern is still strong with us. And a lot of what happened during COVID like cannot be understood without looking at this deep pattern of human nature. It can't be understood merely by science gone wrong or by uh, manipulative elites, you know, or totalitarians. Jesus is an example, uh, you know, well, that's a whole robe, uh, everything else. Right. Uh, Although Jesus, okay. Anyway, whatever, I'll just finish the thought. Um, we can't fully understand what happened during the pandemic without um, the Girardian lens. You know, you can't understand it just by an evil conspiracy. You can't understand it just by, by um, you know, the orthodox view, the science, you know, a virus. Like, you cannot understand this without looking at this deep pattern of human beings that goes even before civilization. You're 100% right. It, it nails it so much, even when Gerard say, we do not invent our gods, we deify our victims. Isn't that part of it? We we sacrifice this person, but later we make them, uh, we make them the king. I mean, Jesus was a criminal. Uh, Muhammad was a criminal. Moses was a criminal. He was a wanted murderer. Yeah, uh, Kennedy George- even. George, yeah, very. George Floyd was a criminal, and he was sort of deep. Right. I mean, that's part of a very strange human nature. We is it guilt why we have to make them gods and heroes and all that afterwards, or a guilt that we've done something wrong because Jesus and Muhammad or George Floyd didn't deserve, you know, being ostracized and killed at the end of the day. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah. Um. So there, there are. Um reverberations of the Christ story, which actually is constructed to overthrow the pattern. Because uh, unlike the classic myth in which the sacrificial victim takes on all of the the uh, um, apparatus of evil, uh, Christ is explicitly described as innocent and and you and doesn't fit into that pattern. It's his blamelessness is necessary to instigate a new myth. And and his innocence speaks to the innocence of all of the sacrificial victims of mob violence. Even if they were guilty of something, they weren't guilty of what the mob projects onto them as evil and blame for the crisis of society. So so the sacred, like, um, capital punishment is another manifestation of this pattern where, where the idea is there's been a, a disruption to the social order. The gods are displeased. 
something has to be done. A sacrifice needs to be made. And so we execute the victim. And it doesn't even matter necessarily if the victim was guilty. Something still needs to be done, according to this social psychology. And and yeah, anyway, there's 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 you know in my in my book I I cite quite a lot of the um, scholarship around this, and it's probably a bit deeper than than I want to go right now. But <laughs> no, check out his book, people. Check out the show. I think yeah, Rene Girard and understanding this idea and the projection will go a long way to help him. So check it out, people. But uh, Charles, uh, our society is very sick. I don't know how you feel. I mean, I know often you see these people, for example, Jordan Peterson and other thinkers. Well, poverty is at its, at its best. People make more money. They're living longer. Well, not in the United States. Our mortality is collapsing. But in other parts of the world, people live longer. Uh, these are the best times. And I'm like, Oh, yeah? Well, how come suicide rates, drug addiction, depression, loneliness is worse than it's ever been? Uh, is there any hope or how do you what do we need to do to change as a collective or? Well, we first and first and foremost, we have to be in reality. Uh, and the reality <laughs> is, as you say, we are in a terrible situation. Um, yeah, if you if you try to. <laughs> if you try to judge the state of society by certain metrics, you can paint a picture that looks really good. And, you know, Jordan Peterson is not alone in doing this. Um, th this is uh, uh, this kind of progressivism or triumphalism is uh, kind of taken for granted um, among, you know, many, both left and right. Uh, I, I wrote an article about that. Few years ago, our new happy lives, I think, which is a uh, a reference to Orwell again. Um, Stephen Pinker is one of the main proponents of this view, but yeah, like as you say, um, if things were if, if we had constructed such an enviable society, such that we want to replicate it around the world and lift others up to our condition, then why is it that we have skyrocketing levels of suicide. Like that's just the tip of an iceberg of despair. For every person who commits suicide, there's five who attempt it. And there's probably 500 who are just one step away from that level okay. of misery. Uh, why is it, or you could ask, why is it that something like 20% of the population is on psychiatric medication for depression and anxiety? This is not working. Why is it that the rate of, rate of chronic disease is now something like 50%? This, yeah, like this is, people might live longer than, yes, they do live longer than they did in 1850, a lot longer. Yeah. They live a little bit longer than they did in 1960. In industrialized countries, the, the, and as countries industrialize, the, the life expectancy climbs very quickly mostly due to improvements in sanitation um, and reductions in child mortality. Uh, life expectancy increases very quickly, as it did from 1900 to 1950 here. Since then, in the second half of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century, it in increased by 26 years. Second half, by six years. Since uh, then, not at all. And now it's starting to decline. In the United States, so, mortality rates. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, but if you, so if you just look at life expectancy, then, oh yeah, it's still looking pretty good progress. But if you look at like how healthy and vital people are, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, living in Taiwan in my twenties, mm-hmm. um, the level of health there of people and, and things had already started to change, but there were people who had grown up on traditional diets and, um, you know, live outdoor life lives and just traditional ways, traditional exercise, you know, and their levels of health were, you know, at the time where my 70 year old uncle installed a chairlift in his house to get upstairs, I saw 80 and 90 year olds, um, frequenting these temples in the mountains that could only be reached by climbing 2000 stone stairs. Wow. Like, and, and, and when we moved back to the U S our movers, one of our movers was 70 and I saw him 70 years old. Yeah. And I saw him carry three tatami mats down two flights of stairs. Like it's hard even to carry one tatami mat for me. (laughs) I mean, maybe in my prime, I can manage too. This guy was 70 years old. He was carrying refrigerators. I mean, the guy was like as strong as an ox, 70 years old. And this was not extraordinary, you know? I mean, it was definitely like, yeah, good on you. You know, it it was maybe slightly unusual, but it was not like a marvel, you know? And so like that kind of gave me this, this, that's one of the things that, that enlightened me as to, just how far um, devolved our evolution has taken us. It's not working here. And if we're going to heal, we have to at least start with a sober assessment of where we are in terms of physical health, in terms of mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. Well said, indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have. Uh, I went to Portugal last summer and uh, spent time with my aunt, who's ninety-one. She knows how to use a phone. She's active. Uh, she's like she was in her youth at sixty. It's incredible. And I ask her, "What's your secret?" And she says, "I just walk every day outside for many miles. That's the only. That's my only solution. Is I walk. She just walks. And uh, you are right." Um, it was Anne Rand who said, you can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. So I think that's where we are. And Charles, I think your work is so important at showing this. So for the audience, there's so much more. Check out The Coronation. To check out uh, Climate, A New Story. Charles is uh, helps us think outside the box. And so for the audience, and I'll have this on the show notes, where can people find out more about you? Well, all my my recent writing, I'm always I'm putting on Substack, so you can Charles Eisenstein.substack is where my stuff is right now. Awesome. Well, check it out again. I will have it on the show notes. Any new books you're working on, or uh, anything? No, I'm just kind writing of, uh, No, books seem a little too slow these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're a good foundation, but yeah, I think you it's faster and sometimes more uh, economic rewarding just to stick with YouTube, Substack, you know, the quick hits. So, but, uh, but I would check out your book. So, well, Charles, this has been a great interview. Really appreciate your time and uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for hosting me.
Welcome, everybody, to the Finding Hermes podcast, uh, an extension of Aeon Byte, formerly funded by FTX and uh, Facebook Meta, but we've lost our funding. So please help out. No, I'm just kidding, uh, because these are strange times. But it's always great to have my friend Mitch Horowitz this time to discuss his great book, Uncertain Places. Mitch, thanks for coming back. Thank you, man. Good to see you. Yes, I think uh, it's inevitable that in a future interview, we're going to have to dress up as Kiss. I think it's just going to have to be done. I'm all for it. It doesn't even have to be Halloween. You know, we could just do it in April or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. So who would you be? Who's your guy? Well, uh, I'm a Paul Stanley fan. You know, I'm, I'm also a Peter Chris fan. I actually got an email from Peter Chris. And so he's tops in my book from now on. <laughs> Damn, yeah. so jealous. There yeah. was a book uh, uh, I did called Cosmic Habit for us, and I quoted Peter Chris, and uh, I sent it to him, and he wrote back a really damn nice note. It's a good guy. Yeah. That's so nice. That's yeah. so nice. Uh, yeah. yeah, I would probably have to be. I was always Ace Freely when I was there young you go. in the Kiss Army. I would Halloween. I dressed up like Ace Freely a couple of times. So. I was like Maybe we 13. can enlist two others. <laughs> Richard, I know, would like to dress up as Gene. You know, Richard Smalley. <laughs> Richard I think Smalley. would like to be Gene. And, he has the you know. tongue. <laughs> yes, he does. Oh. Um, <laughs> so his girl, ex-girlfriend. Edit that out, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we'll just get it. Maybe, maybe you could do a listener uh, or viewer contest, and the fourth will get to uh, dress up as uh, Paul Stanley. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And yeah, I was reading about Kiss, uh, and it kind of reminds me that times haven't changed the day these days of getting offended and seeing the truth you wanted to see. Uh, back in the day, um, Ace Frehley drew the famous Kiss logo, you know. the Yes, of course. And of course, people started freaking out because they said those were the S's were part of the, you know, the Nazi SS symbol. So people were freaking out. And of course, uh, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley's like, hey, we're Jews. I mean, right, Gene Simmons right. came from Israel. We're right, fine. That's it's correct. good. It's good. Right. It means knights in the service of Satan. So everybody just relax, please. <laughs> um, you know, if I may, um, not to usurp the interview, but I wanted to share something. It, sure. it it relates to a chapter that's in uncertain places. In fact, Peter may even be in there because my reason for quoting him is that in the spiritual culture, we very often are conditioned to make divisions between so-called inner, so-called outer. And uh, Peter Chris made the observation that when the band first got together, you know, they were doing okay, but it was when they all hit upon the makeup and a unified look and everybody had his own character and that character had definite traits and and a look. He said it was amazing how it was not only transformative to us as a band, as a cohesive unit, but it was transformative to us as individuals. And he said that Gene Simmons once confided to him that if he could never take that makeup off, he would never take it off, that he felt like that was who he really was. And he said, I I I felt like we we came to occupy these characters as extensions of who we really were. And he was using language that it wasn't a mask, it was the dropping of a mask. It wasn't 
hiding it was revealing you know this is this is the guys that we were born to be and i'm always counseling people that you should never get overly hung up as 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 is so heavily conditioned in us by eastern and western spirituality of these divisions that are supposed to demarcate the real from the material or the 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 actual from the personality or what have you it's one whole it's one whole and sometimes one change a la chaos theory a la chaos marriage it can just make a change in everything and we get too segmented in our thinking and so thank you peter chris <laughs> <laughs> yes i always tell people when an archetype comes for you just go for it let it it wants to speak through you it has a mission for you don't fight against it don't be like uh jonah in the bible who's running around and god keeps saying no you go here because it will transform that's what happened with kiss the archetypes came they embraced it and change the world change yeah. themselves so yeah beautifully put beautifully exactly put. and um so well let's talk about your book on certain places uh tell the audience what what it is about well it's a collection of essays on occult and esoteric topics and it is hopefully a culminating summary of my own wrestling with these topics over the past uh, decade plus or so and it the title on certain places refers to how I feel myself at this point in my search. It's impossible to put together a collection of your work without feeling the turning of some kind of a personal page. And it's also, I think, where, where we are as a culture. Uh, we emerged from the COVID lockdown to find that UFOs had gone mainstream, con concepts that five years ago were still relegated to the crazy section are now being written about ingenuously in the New York Times and the New Yorker and other organs of 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 opinion shaping media and it it raises the question in my mind of whether a ripple effect is going to go out and other things that I hope to see enter uh more of a mainstream discussion like ESP research which is very important to me are going to proceed so even the term gnosis or gnosticism itself is is virtually everywhere today you know you can't put it into google without discovering another hundred thousand entries <laughs> in a 24-hour space and i i've always resisted prognosticating about a new occult revival or shifts in consciousness which i i really try to avoid talking about because i think that starts to get onto very shaky ground but it, it does feel like there's something transitionary going on it does feel frankly like ours may be uh the last generation in which materialism philosophical materialism is this dominant organizing philosophy because it simply no longer covers the bases of life either emergent from the hard sciences, cognitive studies, neuroscience, and introduce into that mix the mainstreaming of the UFO question, convergences potentially around discussions of, of the UFO thesis and interdimensionality, you bring into that questions of psychical research, and there is something really new and uncertain brewing in our culture. So that's what I was driving at with the title. Yeah, your book definitely uh, deals with all of this, and it's a great snapshot of our evolution. And it's yeah, it's kind of nice to see materialism dying and people being more open-minded about things. Uh, was there a, is there a what is the do you have a favorite essay or an essay that was the hardest one to write that really changed you or anything that sticks out, Mitch? 
Well, I suppose for me personally, the two favorites are my introduction, which is a new piece that I wrote for the book and where I try to capture some of these feelings of uncertainty. There's an opening chapter called Reclaiming the Damned, and I'm using the word damned in the Fortean sense, uh, Reclaiming the Rejected. And that's about my own realization back in 2019 that the UFO thesis was going mainstream and what that might mean for our culture. And it was mind blowing because I remember distinctly that summer just watching the green lights go off, that something was was significantly changing. And uh, there was a piece somewhat contemporary to that moment in The New Yorker about this whole mainstreaming movement. And it did something that I've never seen a mainstream article do. They presented the advocates, so to speak. They presented the rejectionists or what are sometimes called the skeptics. And the reporter, to his credit, subjected the advocates and the rejectionists to uh, the same rigor of analysis. And he wrote about the fact that the rejectionists themselves have their stock phraseology, their golden oldies, the things that they always try to use to sort of dispel uh, evidence, uh, their, their manner of speaking, their ways of trying to ingratiate themselves to a reporter and their polemical style. And I had never before seen um, advocates and skeptics when dealing with what might be called a paranormal issue subject to the same scrutiny. And I kept thinking to myself, this article is just the carpeting that goes up the steps to the gallows. You know, we're going to get the slam down at a certain point. And it never came. And that was new. That was different. And that was, again, the first time I've ever seen um, advocates and skeptics uh, put on equal footing and both subjected to appropriate scrutiny uh, in a mainstream place. And so that's part of the mood that inspired that particular essay. And in that essay, I venture my own iteration of a thesis pioneered by Jacques Vallée, which is the question of uh, UFOs possibly being eminent from interdimensionality versus extraterrestriality. And actually, I personally think at this instant in history, we have better models, better conceptualizations of interdimensionality than we do of what would be required for craft to travel these unfathomable distances. And, you know, there are theories, of course, like cosmic wormholes, where you introduce some exotic matter um, into a mix of circumstances and create a black hole. But actually, string theory, also just a conception of reality, not reality, uh, string theory and certain interdimensional theories are not only better developed, but the existence of interdimensionality and other intersections of time is a logical imperative growing out of the data of quantum theory. One can use different words for it. You say interdimensionality, it sounds very far out. But it's actually a logical imperative that goes back to classical quantum experiments from the 1930s, 1940s, gave rise to um, the uh, the many worlds uh, theory of quantum mechanics, um, as pioneered by Hugh Everett III in the uh, late 1950s. So this is stuff that uh, we should be unembarrassed to talk about. We should know what we're talking about, albeit colloquially, albeit as a layman, but we as a human community, we as a seeking community, um, have these questions in front of us and the data is, is, is bulletproof. The data is all but irresistible. There are concepts as to why or how 
uh, an interdimensional universe might work. And again, those are just concepts, but they're they're better developed in my mind than the ET thesis, nor are they exclusive to the ET thesis. There could be both things going on. There could be dozens and dozens of things going on. But um, that's my exploration of that in that opening essay. Yeah, it's a great essay. Uh, I was thinking too, uh, as you, oh, first I would say that yes, interdimensional. I certainly subscribe to the John Keel, Charles Fort interdimensional. Unfortunately, they are, uh, these beings might be the biggest shit posters in the world. They can be tricksters. Their morals do not align with our little human morals. So there is peril and opportunity going down, if you know what I mean. Um, but uh, yeah, in your book, you say today we live we live in uncertain places. And I feel, too, that, uh, yeah, this is, um, as I keep saying, this is the age of Hermes. It's an age of transition. We're going through a giant doorway. The American empire is probably collapsing and there'll be a new age. Uh, what and um, how do you feel about uh, this change, Mitch? Or what do you tell people about this change? Well, I think when you say we're living in an age of Hermes, not only does that resonate with me on many different levels, including the fact that this is an age of uh, dissemination, Hermes being the god of communication, of writing, of intellect. But look, you know, apropos of what I was saying about these cultural openings, we're discovering now new folds within the hermetic literature itself. Um, I'm, I'm reviewing a new book written by uh, the uh, scholar of esotericism, Walter Honegraaff, uh, Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination. And that book, which is very expensive for the consumer, and that's that's an issue. I mean, I wish Cambridge University Press would create a readerly edition that the yeah. everyday person could afford. Or Brill or those where you have yeah. 200 bucks for a stupid book. It's really heavy. <laughs> and I, I really think they owe it to the reader and they owe it to themselves. Frankly, I can't fathom that it, it wouldn't be sustainable commerce. I mean, you sell a thousand copies of a print on demand edition, it can be priced at $25, $30. And, um, and I think the public should have that resource available for now um, unless a person can drop loads of money on 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 books or other accoutrements of life, you can re rely on a library. But in any case, <clears throat> Honegraaff did a really masterful job in this book of describing the problems that we as Western readers experience with hermetic literature, the disadvantageous place that we find ourselves in because the stuff has been chopped and diced and and readapted over many many years uh, really millennia i mean going back to late antiquity up through the renaissance up through our own era and um different writers uh, sometimes late ancient writers sometimes uh, medieval sometimes renaissance era writers uh went into the recipe book and they they added their own things and he tries to he tries to make a really, really faithful reading of the original text, best as we can get to it. At the same time, as you well know, uh, Project Hindsight and, and other uh, cohorts and groupings of independent scholars are uncovering and translating new works of Hellenic astrology, sometimes in Latin, sometimes in Greek. And we as a generation, we're really enormously fortunate in that we have the first really readable, reliable translations in English of Hermetic literature, that really just goes back, 
I think, to 1992 when Brian Copenhagen, uh, Copenhaver, um, Copenhagen, sorry, um, published his really wonderful um, translation of the Corpus Hermeticum and Asclepius uh, for, again, for Cambridge University Press, which has done yeoman's work in this area, despite their pricing policies. Um, and so 1992 um, marks the uh, publication of the Copenhagen uh, translation. Uh, 2000 marks the publication of a translation by Clement Salmon and his collaborators at Inner Traditions. And those are two sterling translations. I mean, they really are sterling. And if, if this conversation were occurring back in the 1950s, 1960s, 70s, we wouldn't have this stuff. And we do have it as a generation. So it's the age of Hermes in a very full-throated way, you know, I mean, not only is this due to spiritual and, and cultural events, but quite literally, this, this literature is finally reaching people for the first time in a way that's available to the dedicated generalist. So you're not kidding. I mean, this, this really is the age of Hermes. It is indeed. And how do you think uh, Hermeticism can help us? Here's an example. And of course, feel free to challenge or <clears throat> come up with your own but humans cannot deal with the environment to say the least um the problem in having had this conversation with gordon white his great book animistic is, is the classic problem you can't solve something with the same thinking that got you into it yes. so we're in other words we are in a trap we Term, even terms like uh, ecosystem, environmentalism, uh, all these terms are colonizer terms. And we're still in this habit that we need to force these things. You know what I mean? Cause and effect. And so we're in a trap. We're not going to solve the problem of planet Earth that way unless we can start thinking like the ancients who are more holistic, embedded. Uh, they understood there was no separation, but that's very hard. How do you and I, how's Mitch and Miguel going to think like a Mayan? It's just right. But Hermeticism, I feel, offers that bridge, that Western thinking, because Hermeticism truly is very much, I'm going to use a colonizer term, eco-friendly. You know, the belief that everything's connected and it yeah. flows out and the core cosmos says that animals come from human souls, so we have to take care of them. It's a very compassionate, uh, eco-friendly religion that Westerns can think about. And you see it in the Renaissance. Giordano Bruno and John Dee are like, no, there's no separation between mind and body and nature and human being. And everything is within each other and everything. So uh, do you feel hermeticism could be a solution for this and other issues today if we embrace that? We embrace Hermes? Well, there's so much to unpack there. You know, for me, uh, and I'll I'll try to sort of segment that, that question in, in brief. Uh, for me, personally speaking, hermeticism has been uniquely helpful in resolving some of the contradictions in new thought or mind metaphysics. Mm -hmm. I'm very dedicated to mind causation philosophies, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in academic ESP research, and one of the reasons I'm so dedicated to hermeticism, because 
the the rub within those philosophies, the failure of those philosophies, frankly, has been to arrive at a theology of suffering. And the denial of suffering to me is just a, a blanket absurdity at this point in the human journey, although I respect radical metaphysics like Christian science and so on. But unless you're going to go all the way in that direction, which I encourage if an individual is so is so desirous, it's almost like talking about nonviolence without going all the way in the direction that that Gandhi did or that Martin Luther King did, you know, and you better, if you take yourself intellectually seriously, be really sure that if you believe in a radical metaphysics of non-materialism defined to its ultimate limit, or you believe in a radical metaphysics of non-violence, understand where that, that goes. That's not precisely my metaphysics, although I'm obviously sympathetic to the not sympathetic, but but share a conviction of the extra physicality of human existence. And I think it's very hard to avoid that in some iteration today. And that's always been a deep, deep part of my outlook. But that includes the laws that we, the intervening laws that we experience, like mass, physical decline, death, not to mention natural laws, some of which you're indirectly referencing, uh, including the backlash from weather systems gone wild. And these are as as real as, as the words I'm speaking right now in terms of human experience. So hermeticism identifies humanity potentially at a what might be considered a disadvantageous place in the cosmic order and that we emanate from noose, the infinite mind, we occupy a concentric circle of reality. And this concentric circle of reality has its own things that must be suffered that are part of our existence. You find that metaphysics in the work of Gurdjieff, which I think is extremely valuable. So because new thought and hermeticism have certain parallel insights, I think it's fair to say, it's helpful for me to go back and drink from the waters of hermeticism as a way of also finding a metaphysics that doesn't contradict thought causation, but that leavens it with an understanding of many different laws and forces. And absolutely, as you were suggesting, hermeticism provides a, a view of the wholeness of, of existence. If all matter goes back to infinite mind, then it stands to reason that this interconnectedness is as basic to our lives, you know, as are the fingers on, on my right hand. With regard to whether this can help us shift our mindset to deal with climate change, I'm at a loss because there are so many competing interests going into that. Like, it's good uh, to hear from Gordon on this topic because he lives a fairly agrarian lifestyle and his closeness to livestock and 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 agriculture gives him a unique perspective that I lack uh, sitting here in the middle of Brooklyn, you know, getting ready to throw out another vape stick that's going to be, you know, taken on a garbage barge right. and buried who the fuck knows where, you know, and endanger somebody's health. And I don't want that, but my day-to-day -day life has such blinders, you know, and I, 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 I not living either in lower ground or a delicate, you know, relatively speaking, a delicate climate or what have you. I haven't felt those first deadly gusts of uh, climate change. And it's, it's hard for me to know. I have some friends who come from a tech background who within the current framework are persuaded that, um, 
nuclear energy is the thing that's going to save us. Whereas, you know, others believe, no, it's, you know, wind, solar, and so on and so forth. And I'm at a loss. You know, I, I, I think that it's almost a discredit, in a sense, to my own outlook that I, living in a metropolitan area that's not again, widely considered to be climate delicate. I mean, it's not, you know, low-lying ground. It's not near, you know, it's, it's not immediately endangered by by rising ocean levels and things just because of the topography of of of, of the land. Um I haven't I haven't really come face to face with it. I find I'm more sort of a guy who believes in recycling his bottles and I doubt they're really being recycled, but but, but it I, feels good. But right? I sleep easy at night, <laughs> feeling that I've sorted my recycling because I'm wonderful. Um, I, 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 I guess Gordon would say, "Don't use the word climate." As soon as you use the word climate change, you you're right into it. There is no climate. There's there's only us. You are there, climate. There's only Mitch us. Is horrid. There's only one jungle, and we're part of this jungle. I mean, the 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 truth is, the most sincere response I can give you is to sort of bow my head in acknowledgement to how distant uh, psychically I've been from that issue aside from just being a guy who reads about it in the papers and then you know goes on resorting his recyclables and I'm I'm probably like a lot of people in this country it is at the same time I mean uh the hermeticism falls as scholar Stephen Davis have said into the mind model which in the west you in ancient times or up to modern times you only find it in hermeticism and Christian Gnosticism, obviously in the East, the mind model is a Advaita Vedanta, certain forms of Buddhism. And then in the West, of course, it evolved into Kabbalah and Sufism, that idea that we are mind and the mind is within us. Yes. That can be transformative. And isn't, you would say Hermeticism was the first new age and, influ- and new thought is basically grabbing the baton of uh Hermeticism, and this is an opportunity for us today that we can manifest a better world? Well, I- indirectly, I would say New Thought relates to Hermeticism, mm-hmm. indirectly. It's it's always important for seekers to remember that uh, during the um, early medieval period, the so-called Dark Ages, I mean, so much was destroyed and so much was lost, whether early Christians were were burning stuff, throwing it into the ocean, uh, obviously, some were uh, secreting stuff away into monasteries to all of our benefit. Um, and the line was so jagged and so interrupted. I mean, we don't we we re- we reference the Corpus Hermeticum, this this book of of seventeen tracts, but the originals are long lost. the The earliest copies we have, well, you know, there are pieces of them that go back to the eleventh century. There's obviously much fuller pieces that go back to. Um, the uh, the fifteenth century uh, when the corpus got uh, translated and then other stuff got added to it. But w- w- when the folks who put together the new thought model were doing their experiments, to a great extent, they were acting independently, and they were people in rural environs, frequently in New England, and they didn't have translations of the hermetic literature. I mean, there were some bopping around out there, including one going back to uh, 1650 by John Everard, but they really didn't have this kind of source material. And it always, I always try to remind myself and remind others that 
when we're talking about whether it be Western esotericism or Eastern spiritual literature, um, the Bhagavad Gita, the I Ching, first translation of the I Ching really wasn't until about 1868. Um, in 1841, when Emerson assembled his uh, uh, series of first essays, there was probably just about five English language copies of uh, the Bhagavad Gita in translation here in the U.S. So a lot of people, I mean, it was a very rural environment. Uh, there weren't a lot of, you know, universities and, 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 and massive libraries, you know, there were private collectors, private collections and things of that nature, a few exceptions, obviously. Um, so a lot of seekers didn't have access to this material, which to me makes it all the more exciting when you discover these parallel insights. So when you discover, you know, a guy like Richard Buck in his book, Cosmic Consciousness in 1901, thinking about stuff that comports pretty decently with Hermeticism, it's very exciting when you encounter rural folk in the U.S., sometimes a lot earlier than 1901, putting together some of the earliest expressions, ideas, instincts of what would become in the 1890s new thought, they too were in large measure acting very independently. So those parallel insights are very exciting to me. And I do think, I do think, and I, I think this is um, suggested in, in your observations. Um, when I talk about Hermeticism and the idea of an infinite mind and news, I usually get a lot of nodding heads, you know, from Westerners. Like Westerners, there's something innately graspable to this. It's not so foreign and far away from our Abrahamic religious system. Uh, it's not so difficult to, to get one's arms around. And I think that the Gnostic, the Hermetic, the Abrahamic are pretty much the name of the game in terms of our religious outlook here in the West. Um, there's lots of stuff that predated that, of course, um, some of which has been unfortunately lost to us. And then there are other kind of, I suppose, indigenous traditions which have their own cosmologies and mythologies. But for those of us whose ancestors uh, came here on a boat at one point or another, um, Hermeticism strikes me as really graspable, and people do respond to it. And it's not tough for people of an Abrahamic background to get their arms around it. So what you're saying, I think, is a um, um, it's an ideal, but it's a it's an achievable ideal that the Western um thinking man or woman approaching Hermeticism could feel pretty at home there. That's my impression. And that's been my personal experience. I would say so too. And again, Hermeticism has been transformative. Uh, Islam during the Caliphate, the Renaissance, uh, wherever Hermeticism goes. I mean, even the founding of this country, it's no secret the founding fathers knew about Hermes or tapped into his spirit. And Absolutely. It transforms for the better. So uh, I agree. It also happens to be true in my estimation, which is always an added benefit to philosophies. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. That's just a personal note. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And if you disagree, I will cancel you. <laughs> exactly. Right? Well, I must share a humorous remark. We were talking about our mutual friend, Richard Smoley, earlier. I was having a dialogue uh, online with Richard. We were preparing for a program at the Theosophical Society. And um, I said to Richard, uh, why has astrology uh proven of such posterity over the millennia 
And uh, Richard paused for a minute, stroked his chin and said, well, because it's pretty accurate. And I loved that answer because, of course, we all feel this 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 sense of intellectual intimidation that we somehow have to first justify things by way of some you know dry sociological yeah. answer or some august religious reference to to you know b- b- before we we gingerly uh, uh, um, uh, acknowledge belief in something and I appreciate that he was willing to lead with that and I think we need more transparency in our culture and if we're going to talk about something whether it be political or spiritual or whatever. Be transparent. Just just put it out there so nobody, there aren't these issues of trust that bubble up. What is this guy really trying to drive at? And it's like, well, he just said it, you know, so and then he can defend it if he feels like it or not, you know, but but I think that we need more of those those blunt declarations of who we are. As a friend once told me, whatever works, works. Just make sure it works. It's simple. If astrology works, people have been doing it for thousands of years when we're gone. They'll be doing it. The stars aren't going anywhere, and they have reward like hermeticism. They have rewarded entire cultures and civilizations. Yes, we can try and debunk it and make fun of it, but you know, <laughs> history and the cosmos will do fine without our criticism or your skeptics' criticism of it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but at the same time, moving um to kind of another subject. And again, you talk about this in certain places that we do live in a time. With a lot of pain and that uncertainty, some people embrace Hermes and they love the confusion and the chaos and the, you know, the doorways and whatever works work. But there is a lot of pain right now. And I love um, I, uh, I'm reading uh, Gabor Mate's book, uh, The Myth of Normal, <clears throat> great book. And he talks about how trauma cannot be healed. Wounds cannot be healed. You just learn to live with them. And in our society, that's like a, a sin, right? But it's true, right, Mitch? Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once you something happened, you just have to learn to manage it or use it for you. You and I have talked about mental disease. We just learn to use depression and bipolarity to our advantage. We we swing with it. So, um, you but, know, uh, I agree ahead. with that sorry. entirely. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, go ahead. My partner, Jacqueline Castell, is a filmmaker. She's completing her first feature movie right now. And she said to me something that I've always remembered. I may quote it in uncertain places. There's an intimate relationship between pain and excellence. Intimate relationship between pain and excellence. And it's exactly what you're describing. Um, William Blake put it differently. Opposition is true friendship. And I I think that in my own life, um, whenever I'm tempted to play this little game of what would it be like to go back and give advice to my younger self or what re- regrets would I like to reverse, uh, be very careful because, uh, first of all, we may be doing that all the time. If, if we live in this radically mind-centered uh, universe and linear time is illusory, uh, we may be recreating at every instant, including this one, a, a sense of so-called past, present, future. So that that little game may be something that actually is at work in our lives constantly. But leaving that aside, I feel that an individual's pain from not being seen, from not being understood, uh, has probably uh, been the driving force behind every conceivable innovation, uh, 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 spiritual, technological, you name it, 
that has uh, marked uh, the human story. And I find in my own life, whatever that passion is that keeps me writing, that keeps me communicating, and everybody always says to me, don't you sleep? Don't you do this? Well, I mean, my first book didn't come out till I was age 43 going on 44. And it was a, it was a, it was a new chapter in my life. And it was a chapter that I've never grown accustomed to or, or taken for granted. And every time I'm writing something, I am trying to prove something. And anybody who comes along and says to me, well, you know, just relax. You don't have anything to prove anymore. And, you know, that's a trauma because, you know, your mother dropped you off at the bowling alley, you know, while, while she bowled and, you know, you were forced to, you know, stay in the daycare center. Who cares? You know, at, at the end of the day, if if the wish to be seen has resulted in in the the productivity that I've tried to bring to my work and the great joy that comes from that and that joy is something I would never trade away never um it's made my life you know it's made my life and of course people do have countervailing tragedies and frictions in life that are are just dominant because maybe it's a health crisis and it just takes up all of a person's time to stay alive and to manage it and that is another scale of friction and that is profoundly it 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 it's dominating of a person's existence so there are these other scales that make me uh, hesitate to speak in in categorical imperatives and i have to be cognizant of that but I would say that for most of us walking around who have clean water to drink or roofs over our head, a reasonable idea of where our next meal is coming from, a pain has often been a, a driver. And without it, there would be no creativity in our lives. And I think actually that when our lives are, are denuded of creativity, broadly defined, it could be anything, that's when a person starts to get into the low-grade depression, the constant feelings of anxiety or dread um the serious substance abuse you know grotesque you know consumption overeating binge watching debt spending the things that do endanger our existence and um and that source of pain i think is is usually an abrogated uh, creativity so listen to the pain might be a, a way of putting it and and what is it what is it moving you towards that's not being satisfied by uh, by booze and 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 weed and TV, all of which is just fine. I engage in all of it myself. But when that becomes the endpoint of uh, the day and the, the you know the beginning point of of the weekend, uh, there's something wrong. That's really very insightful. Yeah, as I tell people, your pain has valuable information. Your shadow has valuable information. They want a seat at the table. Your childhood self that's traumatized. They want a seat at the table. And more often than not, they just want to be heard. There's a past yep. you that still has a story to tell that wants to tell you the whole story. There's your shadow wants to be entertained and have its dark fantasies not realized, but just listen to. And these right. things can be extremely useful for the individual. Uh, but on a collective way, maybe that's an answer because we all have trauma. This wounds won't heal. We just have to learn to live with them and integrate them. But as a country, we have a collective trauma, and it seemed, Mitch, we always had a way of sort of navigating it, right? We accepted that, yes, we had slavery, or two bombs were dropped on Hiroshima, or the Iraq War. You know, Americans kind of knew 
they had these collective wounds, trauma from our past, but now it seems we can't deal with them. Maybe we need to get back to understanding that these things are part of their history and they offer opportunity too. We don't have to try to suppress them or freak out about them. And every country has its sins and collective trauma. Oh, without question. Every country probably occupies territory that at one time or another was occupied by somebody else. You know, I mean, Rome didn't just hang out in Rome, obviously. And um, I, I also, I do think, frankly, the step that the individual can take in terms of dealing with national trauma, and this is something I I try to abide fitfully myself, is we as a human community, or again, it's really up to the individual. I think the individual, every individual faces a question as to how to participate in the hate fest of social media. Um, you know, there's the expression, Twitter is not real life, which has never resonated with me because of course it's real life. Look at the hours that we while away on Twitter and Instagram and other social media. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the dominant language of those mediums is uh, sarcasm, insult, rhetorical questions, smart ass remarks, snarkiness commentary on things that 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 I've never read or what have you and and I think it's the pinnacle of foolishness or 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 the you know depth of foolishness for the individual to feel that that is consequence free for him or herself because I think that when we throw a rock at another person apropos of your point about hermeticism and human wholeness we feel shame from that and justly so we ought to feel shame from it but we conceal it and we conceal it from ourselves by going right back to the bottle another sarcastic remark another uh, smart ass crack another uh, rhetorical question and so forth and so on we keep going back to the bottle and everybody thinks oh I have a poor self-image I don't know anybody on earth who in private conversation uh, won't at one point or another concede to having a poor self-image or a hole or a trauma in them, as you were referencing, that they're trying to fill. Well, the easiest way to consider that is by unplugging from this conduct of hate on social media, because the shame that the individual feels, he or she staggers under. And I challenge people, try it for one hour. Are you willing to give 60 minutes to an existential experiment? Uh, if not, turn the channel, but try it for one hour and and see if you don't stand taller, see if you don't feel a difference in your own life, because as much as that stuff causes anger and humiliation and shame in other people, it causes the same in the purveyor of it. And it's the last place we think to look and we want to blame all the tech giants. It's, it's Zuckerberg's fault. It's Musk's fault. It's this fault, that fault. Well, they're only monetizing anger because it pays. And I, I, it doesn't mean withdrawing from social media. It doesn't mean being milquetoast. It doesn't mean you have to turn into Fred Rogers, although not a bad fucking idea, I might add. <laughs> but it doesn't mean any of that necessarily. It means refusing to participate in that flow of monetized hate that very often takes the forms that I've been referencing. And it, it does help the individual. And if if enough of us don't do it, we will not make it as a human community. We will not make it because that style of communication is so dominant, so 24-7, so widespread that I think it 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 renders us just, just blind, deaf, and dumb, and we can't get anything accomplished that requires a group effort. 
Well said indeed. And yeah, it's something that you've taught me very well for years and I respect is the idea of uh, there's always more to the story of an individual than we know and we're not seeing it. For example, you and I were talking before this interview about a certain individual. My old self would have been like that, uh, you know, he's ignoring me and something like that. But my more mature is like there is more to this than I know. And I know Mitch will be able to, I'll be able to bounce ideas off of him. And your work has always been extremely fair for whether you're writing about Ann Rand or the amazing Randy, whoever you write about, you give us the full story, the dark, the light, their successes, their failures. And you don't you feel this is a great attitude, no matter who it is. Like you said, Elon Musk, the person that swore at you on Twitter, there's so much more that we're not seeing and we need to learn just to, accept that and have compassion there's something we're missing i i wrestle with that too of course you know i mean in private it, heaven forbid someone should take 45 minutes to respond to one of my you know august emails and i'm you know i'm i'm right back into the you know laying on the analyst couch right. Why, you know <laughs> and, and it's very hard it's very hard because these patterns are so uh, they're wounds you know as you put it they're wounds in us and all someone has to do is just put inadvertently one grain of salt into a wound or we put it in ourselves and there's a vast overreaction. But I appreciate what you were saying about the fullness of people. You know, I've written about, I, I reference Ayn Rand in the introduction to Uncertain Places. There's a longer uh, essay I wrote about Rand. I think it's a medium called uh, Why a Pinko New Ager Loves Ayn Rand. Right. And from time to time, I'll repost it or I'll get a request or somebody else will repost it. And I get a shitstorm of attacks as if, you know, this is the problem that will make us all feel better if we just, you know, deplatform this person. And, and, and I have deep differences with Rand. Talk about a wound. You know, Rand was so wounded by the experience of of yeah. communism and Stalinism that she could never think outside of uh, a solution that looked like anything other than the stark polar opposite of what she 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 fled in Russia. And that was a problem in her thought. But at the same time, talk about a protean self-created being. The woman has, particularly when she was younger, such an extraordinary life story. I mean, to flee the early Stalinist Soviet Union, come to the U.S. and in a language that is not your own, and boy, we ain't talking about a romance language, we're talking about a vast difference in languages, to be able to become a successful screenwriter and novelist, I don't care whether one likes her writing, I know 90% of those who don't have never actually read her, and um, I... Um, I'm so struck by the manner in which she was able to recreate herself. She reminds me of Madame H.P. Blavatsky, uh, actually another Russian. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I guess, you know, some people think that she was the software behind all of our problems today. You know, she's the one who all these Silicon Valley guys who we profess to dislike, even as we keep using their products incessantly and doing exactly <laughs> what's expected of us, which right. is, again, monetizing anger, you know, to a very great extent. Um, they feel that she was the kind of ghost in the machine behind the development of the psyche of these guys, which isn't really true. I mean, Steve Jobs was interested in Zen and psychedelics and yeah. Vedism and a whole range of other things. It's a, it's a caricature. Um, and then there's James Randi, a very different figure, 
um, of whom I'm extremely critical. Uh, I wrote an essay of James. Um, you and I had discussed it back at the time of his death, which was about two years ago. Uh, I wrote a counter obituary. Um, I think uh, very sturdily researched and referenced uh, called The Man Who Destroyed Skepticism. In fact, my publisher wanted to use that as the title for the book, but I insisted on uncertain places. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I was deeply critical of James because in the aggregate, I think James was, um, I'm going to use a tough word here and I don't use it lightly. Uh, he was a liar and uh, he misrepresented ESP research and did so having had enough experience, enough knowledge, enough street smarts to know what he was doing. And I disrespect that terribly. I'm aware he was married. I'm aware there are people who loved him. And um, I can mourn for the man. But his public work was uh, just just horrible on the whole. He I'm, you know, did some good things in his career. I make reference to a couple of them in the article. Right. Credit where credit's due. But um, his job, essentially, tough word to use, was lying about cyclical research. And um, I... I cringe using that word. I always tell my kids, don't say lie because lie implies malice. If you stridently disagree with someone or if someone is 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 providing information that's wrong, that doesn't mean they're lying. But in in James's case, uh he was a media professional through and through and um uh, a man of uh um what's the word I'm looking for? Uh a sly man. Mm-hmm. A sly man. Uh, a shrewd man, and um, it was unconscionable that he misinformed people about uh, psychical research that has struggled to get funding and has been, uh, uh, on the academic scale, uh, conducted according to impeccable standards and replication. So uh, those are just two character portraits of two very different people, uh, one of whom I suppose I have greater sympathy for uh, than the other. Um, But we have to find a way of talking about these people, and there may be people who feel that Apropos of what I've just said, I've contradicted myself, but I would submit that um, it does injustice to the language if we don't speak plainly. Um, what what does injustice to others is if we're constantly speaking in terms of um, sarcasm, uh, hatred, um, snarkiness, without information about the whole picture. So when I venture transparency, I try to venture it. Uh, subjecting myself to the same and um, and and doing it based on uh, what I hope what I hope is uh, rigorous, careful, and ethical and and sourced um, research where it's necessary. I have no interest in prying into people's private lives. I didn't pry into his. My uh, 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 judgment and testimony uh, is based strictly on his public career, which has policy implications. Yes, it does. But again, it's nice to see the full picture. And of course, you got a lot of blowback with these, you, as you mentioned, uh, the the comments section and Substack was just, again, what's wrong with this country? People projecting and judging. They were blaming Substack. Even though you wrote the article, it was Substack's fault for allowing this. It's just... Uh, oh, actually, it was uh, the article was on Boing Boing. So it was Boing oh, Boing's okay. fault. Yeah, blame Boing Boing. 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 Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't even read any of the comments, which is not like me. Um, but uh, I, I'm aware of the nature of the comment boards there. And, you know, very few people go there to visit the porch of the Stoics. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something else. And as we get to the end, um, what do you, how do you feel about conspiracy theories? Like, I feel 
conspiracy theory should be its own discipline, its own subject or a class in uh, university. Remember when mythology was just fanciful stories and that nobody took it serious in the 18th, 19th century. And then suddenly Joseph Campbell and Houston come and suddenly people realize, no, it's its own discipline. This mm. is, it has its own psycho-spiritual rewards it has its own niche in the in the history of hu the human psyche. I almost feel conspiracy theory should be that way too. We need to find out, not dismiss them, not embrace them, but again, find a holistic. Why are they happening? Mm. What does it mean to the individual? I mean, how do you feel about them, Mitch? It's a tough spot for me. You know, it's a very emotional subject area for me because I find myself on the receiving end of conspiracy theorizing. You know, the other yeah. day I was giving an interview and I was wearing a shirt from a Freemasonic convention back in 2019. And someone's like, this guy is publicly associated with Freemasons. Do you have any idea how horrible they are? Do the research. And, you know, and, 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 and I'm supposed to be a spokesman for the Illuminati, whatever that is, you know, and um, I mean, it has a historical existence, of course, which I write about in the book. Um, frequently uh, conspiracy theories, it seems to me, are just an expression of man's perpetual hunt for a, a hidden foe. And we really get off on it. And a lot of the tropes within conspiracy theories are just, you know, language that you heard earlier in um, uh, more traditional anti-Semitism or witch hunt language or things of that nature that, that get remade. And I, I think that there's a lot of conspiracy folk who are maybe knowingly or unknowingly, probably unknowingly, uh, clipping and pasting things from other epochs of history that have been used as persecutory canards and they're remaking it. And of course, you can find connections among anything if you look hard enough, which doesn't mean connections are not also there. But, you know, you, you sort of have to balance between those two poles. And I have tended to have, frankly, an emotional reaction against conspiracy theories, which I'm perfectly capable of defending. Um, but what you're saying is uh, an idea, uh, it opens a window that I think I probably need to live with because rather than just wringing my hands and saying, I don't like this and restating my argument over and over as to why I don't like it, <laughs> doesn't precisely mean that anything's going to change, that anybody's mind is going to get changed or that people are going to stop throwing rocks at one another. So the... Um, the inlet that you're opening, the inlet of thought, it just may be something that I have to live with because I've become aware that there are some people who engage in what I would call conspiracy theories with whom I might actually have commonalities on different subjects, with whom I might be able to have a fantastic discussion about hermeticism or chaos magic or something else and who care about and are dedicated to these issues. So if that wedge is going to get between me and another person with whom I could otherwise have an exchange, uh, it behooves me to revisit my position uh, and figure out, is there something that needs further digesting here? Because um, I've been pretty hardcore anti, and I have my reasons for that. But what you're saying uh, about mythology and about it being its own discipline, and maybe we understand that 
there wasn't really an Icarus who flew too close to the sun, but we also see that as a universal parable of human nature. And there's no one of any age who doesn't understand that story. Maybe uh, in, in, in cases, conspiracy theories need to be taken the same way, not as forensics, but as parables. So I will sit with that. I, I will sit with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud would have had a blast with this stuff. And again, <laughs> UFOs and ESP were once sort of dismissed as conspiracy yeah. theories. Or I like how Jimmy Dore calls conspiracy theories. He calls them spoiler alerts these days. <laughs> so how so? How, how does he mean that? <laughs> well, I don't want to get too political, but he says okay. you say thing and then suddenly six months later it's... Uh, yeah, you'll have to listen to his channel. I don't want to get too political. <laughs> yeah, I dig. But I have said, you know, and I think I, I I I don't know if I say this in the book. I think I say this in Daydream Believer. I talk about the disingenuous pushback against ESP research. And I say that, you know, again, there I have to use a word that I don't like using, but in the name of transparency and bluntness, I have to. It's suppression of a cultural sort. Right. The 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 outlook of philosophical materialism is drunk from so deeply in academia and 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 in a, a great deal of media that the people regurgitating its conceptions don't even realize that they have a philosophy. They think, well, this is just the natural order of things, right? You know, uh, water is wet. It's self-evident to them. And of course, they are repeating nostrums that come from a certain outlook, an outlook that covers fewer and fewer bases of life in the 21st century. So I describe it as a kind of cultural uh, suppression. So in that sense, you know, I'm saying, hey, you guys are are spouting pushback that you think is rationality, but you're actually using unexamined premises in defense of rationality, which seems antithetical. So maybe this is part of a broader discussion. Yeah, and you could say the conspiracy was individuals like the amazing Randy and others suppressing this stuff because, well, they have a, a vested interest. They're making money. Western medicine has made so much, so many people rich, you know, or other things. Why deal with ESP and other things that could be healing? I mean, you talk and, a lot about the, the power of the placebo effect, which got suppressed. It's it's know. extraordinary. And I think sometimes people engage in these debates for reasons that they don't even know. I think it's just emotional. We get into this contest mentality and um, I'm, you know, I must be right because I've been saying this for 30 years. And if I'm, if I'm, proven wrong, or if there's a scent trail that suggests I'm wrong, well, I have to destroy that scent trail. And uh, our sense of self gets so bound up in our positions that they become emotional. And we like to tell ourselves and others, I'm defending rationality, I'm defending disclosure, put whatever name on it you want. But it's just a self-defense, really. Agreed, agreed. So, well, at least we're making breakthroughs, like you said. Uh, there, there are things that are much better. You and I are not considered kooks, less of kooks now because UFO, <laughs> psychic research, a little less acceptable, palatable to modern sensibilities. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are at the end for everybody. There is a lot of good stuff in uncertain places. Highly recommended. Mitch has some great, great essays that are 
relevant that deal with our modern times that go from satanism to hermeticism to all these great topics in the esoterica in the new age new thought or just holistic living so yeah mitch really appreciate uh, you coming on and discussing your new book back at you really enjoyed it as I always do thank you <laughs>